Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. So turn with me in your iPhones to uh, 1 John. The Gospel of John is John's testimony about Jesus' life and ministry. Um, the letter he wrote, 1 John, is a letter that he wrote after the fact um, to the church. This is what he says in that letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So John is saying, what I'm about to tell you about and what I've been telling you about is something I historically witnessed, I saw with my eyes and I touched with my hands. And that was the life was made... or concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. He's talking about Jesus. He's saying Jesus is the life. We've seen it. We testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we also proclaim to you so that you will have fellowship with us. So his whole ministry of proclaiming Jesus, his purpose is in that, so that statement, so that you may have fellowship with us And our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in Him him there is no darkness. And if we say we have fellowship Him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we actually have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The grass withers when the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for these words as we consider them. I pray that you administer to our hearts and you would give us an imagination and a desire to be a part of a new kind of community that's very different from what we ever expected could be possible. Father God, I pray that we would have bigger dreams, that we'd be able to dream beyond ourselves because of the way we've become assured of your love for us. And we need that. So minister to us in your name we pray. Amen. So here's the, the point I want to make tonight. And it really is, the, the escape room thing kind of sets it up. Uh... You can't read the Bible, and you can't consider what it means to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, to be a Christian, um, without at some point seeing very clearly that you can only be successful together. Uh, You can only become the person or grow into the kind of person that God intends to craft out of humanity inside of the context of relationships. Um, and sometimes what we falsely think when I maybe ask you, like, imagine who is the most, like, super religious Christian, a lot of times we think about someone who's separated, right, from the world. Someone who's, like, super disciplined. And when we think, and maybe even what you think when you think, what does it mean for me to be a Christian, you mainly think about the transformation as being something that takes place inside of you, that it's this internal process where you take in some really profound thoughts and insights about the world and you kind of, they bounce around inside your head, and then you kind of formulate some plans, and you set some goals about how you're now going to be a different person. And you think about the process of growing as something that primarily takes place inside of your head. 
I'm not saying things don't take place inside of us. There's not thoughtfulness and affection and all kinds of things. But the context for growth is community. If nothing else, take this away, wherever you are in your faith. Uh, following Jesus is a team sport. Following Jesus is a team sport. If you've, have you ever seen, if you go to the tailgates, you see these kids every now and then, you feel sorry for them. Have you ever seen the kid throwing the football to himself? Maybe some of you were that kid. That's okay, we love you. And I will throw the football with you, okay? <laughs> but if you've ever seen a kid, right, throw the ball up and then run and catch it, if you go and ask that kid what he's doing, he'll say, I'm playing football. And because we're nice, we're not going to say, no, you're not. But we're all thinking, no, you're not. You're doing football, you're doing activities that have the appearance of football, but no, sir, you're not playing football. There are no categories in Scripture that allow us to think we are in any way, shape, or form practicing authentic Christianity or following Jesus or growing as a Christian if we're doing it by ourselves. And in fact, Paul in his letter to uh, the church at Ephesus in chapter 4, I've referenced this before, is he actually describes Christian maturity as the maturity of a group. He doesn't even describe it as individual maturity. He's saying, no, 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 you're mature when God's people together are working together in love and building each other up. So there's no such thing as Christian maturity outside of the meaningful network of relationships um, and it's not just that community and relationships are the context or the means for growth. So it's not just like, well, then I need a community so that I can use it so that I can grow. It's actually also the goal. Um, the Grant study, which has been written about for years now, was a 75-year study. It was conducted over 75 years by the Harvard Medical School asking the question of what is the key to fulfillment. It's one of the most ambitious, if not the most ambitious uh, and expensive sociological study done. This is what they found over 75 years, is that fulfillment had little to nothing to do with success, had little to nothing to do with money, had little to nothing to do with acquiring power or influence. It completely had to do with meaningful relationships. God's purpose for you is to actually grow you into a person who loves. Guess what? You can't be a person who loves unless there are people around you to love. The virtue God intends to grow in you actually requires the presence of others. God intends to grow you into a person, a person of patience. Patience can only be expressed in relationships. He intends to grow you into a person of kindness. Kindness only exists if it's directed toward other people. Charity, understanding, bearing with one another, forgiving, serving, giving, truth-telling, protecting. If you go and kind of catalog from Scripture the virtues and the character traits God intends to grow in you, they're almost all exclusively social. In other words, you cannot have them unless you're in relationships. And John says, we reclaim, when he, that was from the beginning which we've heard all of this. We proclaim to you this story about Jesus for what purpose? So that you will have fellowship with us and with God. And he actually says, so that our joy may be complete. The completion of joy and the aim of his gospel proclamation is fellowship with God and one another. What we're going to do tonight, there's a lot to talk about here, is I'm just going to talk about three features of the kind of community of relationship that God intends to build with us and build of us. And the first one is this. 
deep friendship. And I want to talk about what that means. And it might mean something different, or I want to challenge you a little bit about the way you think about friendship. Because friendship is not simply knowing someone, uh, and it's not simply enjoying someone. It's not simply being able to get along with someone. Uh, Those things are not bad. They're just ultimately not very deep. They're pleasant, but they're not very deep. And those, are the, those just aren't the things that deep friendship consists of. And the Greek word for fellowship that shows up in this text is a word that maybe you've heard before, uh, koinonia. And uh, that word in Greek means to share or to have in common. And the way C.S. Lewis picks up that word and begins to describe friendship in his book, The Four Loves, which if you haven't read, is it short and it's absolutely amazing. He has a chapter on friendship. He says, this is what friendship is. A friendship is when you discover that you share a common love with someone. He says, friendship starts when two people stand side by side and realize they're both looking at the same horizon or dreaming the same dream or have the same love. And he says, friendship starts with a you two. When you realize someone else has the same love and you go, you too. Friendship is around something. When you discover that you have a deep commonality with somebody, a horizon that you both dream of or a love that you both share. Um, One of the things I love is fantasy literature. And the first time I hung out with Katiana, I found out Katiana loves fantasy literature. And we totally like bonded over that and nerded out over like all the weird authors and the weird stories. And we talked about wizards and magic and all the kind of things that make normal people feel uncomfortable that this is a part of like public discussion, right? <laughs> we didn't bring any 12-sided die or anything like that, didn't but <laughs> shared, we, we, we kind of shared some of our favorite things and, and immediately there's a bond forged. But this is the thing, is... Fantasy literature is like a level three love. Level three is good. That's right up there with like naps. And I really love good socks. I'm really fanatical about good socks and good weather. But that's only like level three depth. And we can connect over level three depth. But to grow into deeper friendship, you have to find something deeper to bond over. Because deep oneness, the kind of thing that fellowship and this idea of koinonia is getting at, it occurs when you have in common with something else your deepest loves, the things that are sitting at the deepest part of your heart. And what Elizabeth and I have is we have these like four little perfect baby girl children, who they're 12 and 10, but they'll always be babies, right? That have the deepest part of us. And we experience deep oneness on that, Kristen's, as she walks out. Deep oneness, deep oneness. I think the reason that a lot of us are lonely here is actually not because of the busyness. I think the busyness thing, the workaholism, is actually just a symptom. It's actually a way that we occupy ourselves or try to find meaning. I don't think that's the biggest problem. Um, I think the reason is because we actually don't have a deep love or we don't have a deep love that's any bigger than ourselves. Um, You can't have deep oneness until you discover with someone else that both of y'all share a deep love that's outside of you, right? Because if your most fundamental commitment is to you, can anyone be friends with you on that deep of a level? No. Right? If, 
Robert Bella is a social scientist at Berkeley who wrote, um, wrote this book called Habits of the Heart in the 80s, which is amazing, where he studies commitment and individualism in American life. And he said this, the ideal today is the unencumbered self. And he explores the concept of uh, expressive individualism and things like that. And the way one of my friends said it is that this is what the unencumbered self or the ex- fully expressed individual is, is someone who, if we could have our own way, no institution and no commitment and no relationship would get in the way of me being me and of me expressing me and of me pursuing what I am all about. If at the center of your heart, at the deepest level of your being, self-expression is, is your chief thing, can you have deep friendship? The answer is no. You can bond over naps, and that's okay. That's level three. But if at the deepest level of being, your f- most fundamental commitment is to self, you cannot have deep friendship. You can approximate it, and you can get along with people, and you can have people you laugh with. But you can't experience deep friendship. And what John is saying, what knits us together in deep friendship with one another, is actually fellowship with God. And not just fellowship with God, and not just friendship with God, but a deeper desire and longing for His kingdom. So it's not just that we have a deep love that we share, a deep treasure, but we also actually have a dream, something that we dream for. Something that we long for that actually orients our lives and gives purpose and meaning to all the things we're doing and all the context in which we're living and all the ambition that we're directing. That we actually have a cosmic purpose for it that we share, that we seek in our different avenues, right? Wherever you're majoring, wherever you're living, whatever your context is. But it is a common dream that actually engrafts and drafts in all of our ambition. One kind of rhetorical or conceptual way to think about it what you hold at the deepest part of your heart is the language of kingdom. That's language that the Bible employs all over the place. And if you have an individualistic, distinctly you-developed and you-centered deep vision of how the world ought to be ordered, right? You, have a con- you think about how your friends should all be in reference to you. You think about life is about getting the life that you want for you. The biblical kind of conceptual framework for that is you're seeking the kingdom of self, the kingdom of you. My dreams are for me, my resources are for me. When Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God, he is calling us to consider and envision a world that is flourishing because its driving engine is not me trying to make me happy, but its driving engine is for you and for us is a longing, a deep longing, a deepest longing that anyone and everyone you know would have their hearts filled up with God's gracious love because He forgives and because He's merciful and because He's kind and because He's good, because He conquered death at the cross, because He meets in Jesus all of our deepest, deepest needs. And so what happens is you begin to have a deep longing for His kingdom in the world, a world that is actually ordered and transformed by His love. And then all of a sudden you actually relate to your life and your ambition and your calendar tomorrow in a totally different way because you no longer see it as a, as a medium for manifesting yourself and your kingdom, you actually see it all as a medium for making His love known. And when that becomes your deeper love, and when God takes hold of you and you encounter that deeper mission, you will find deep friends. And there's nothing sweeter than laboring together toward that end. This past Sunday, 
I went to an Alpine Strikers soccer game. That's the club that my girls play in. And I want to tell you about all the people that I stood with on the sideline. Uh, this is Alpine Strikers' moms and dads, but I'm going to tell you specifically about the dads. Here are who the dads are. First of all, we all have our most favorite people in the world, our children, on a soccer team together, right? That should connect us. Um, we all drive BMWs and our wives drive Odysseys. There's some Tesla people in there, but by and large, pretty narrow range of types of cars we drive. We live in the same neighborhood. Our children go to the same school. We're middle-aged, upper-middle-class white guys, and we are keeping Patagonia in business. <laughs> right? The Patagonia Nano Puff Jackets. So we have any tonight? We got Heather. Yeah, any others? Ready to be a Menlo dad. It's all right. <laughs> That's what we have in common. Uh, I couldn't tell you what any of them are really about. They couldn't tell you what I was about. We can talk about soccer. Uh, We can talk about the school district a little bit. Uh, Meaningful connection or depth outside of those contexts is completely absent. If there is anybody I should be able to experience deep connection with on the surface, right, is a bunch of upper-middle-class, white, Patagonia-wearing soccer dads in Menlo Park. Those are my people. There's not much there. Several weeks ago over Profro Weekend, actually about two months ago, Terry Rodriguez emailed me. This is who Terry Rodriguez is. We don't know each other. She knows Jocelyn. I don't know Jocelyn. This is all true. That it sounds like I'm making stuff up. But who would use the name Jocelyn in a fictional story, right? <laughs> Terry emails Jocelyn and says, I'm coming to visit Stanford. Do you know anybody there? Jocelyn doesn't know anybody there, so she emails Ashley Kim, who a lot of y'all know. And Ashley Kim emails me and says, hey, I know this girl named Jocelyn. Jocelyn knows this girl named Terry. Terry's coming to Stanford so her son can look at it pro for a weekend. Do you know, can she stay with y'all? Here's who Terry Rodriguez is. She's a Chinese-American woman who has college-age children. She lives in the Dominican Republic, and she fights against sex trafficking because Jesus' love in her life now compels her to fight for the oppressed. So they came and stayed with us for three days over Profro weekend. We're different ethnicities, different occupation, different class, different countries, different stage of life. But for those three days... Our family and Terry and Nicholas experienced deep friendship and deep joy and deep prayer and deep conversation over food and over laughter because actually at our deepest selves, we had a deep and common love. When we don't have the redeeming love of Jesus at our deepest, what we'll do, everyone, progressive or conservative, it doesn't matter where you are, is we'll continue to create a culture in which communities and friendship are created around lesser things like education level and race and wealth and politics and personality types, we'll continue building cultures of exclusion anytime we build a culture on anything other than grace. When our hearts are captured by the kingdom of God that is built through the grace of Jesus Christ, incredible community has happened, happens. Deep friendship is the first feature. The second feature is radical truth. I just had to come up with two-word points because friendship, truth, and grace was too simple, right? But radical truth. John goes on to say, he says, this is the message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. Here's the message. God is light. In him there's no darkness. 
So you can't say that you have fellowship with him if you still walk in the darkness. This is what John says. Because he's all light. The question for us is then, well, what does light do? What does that mean? Well, the main thing light does is it reveals. Right? He goes on to say the one thing that light does is it actually exposes sin. If we say we have no sin then, then the truth is not in us. It actually means we're not in the light. What happens is when we read that, it says, ah, God is light, and in Him there's no darkness. So if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. If we walk in the light, He is in the light. We have fellowship with another. We read that language and you think, okay, walking in the light, you can't say you're with God unless you're walking in the light. And we think walking in the light is moral perfection, right? Like living the right way. But then He says this immediately. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's saying, no, no, no. Someone who is in the dark is someone who says, I have no sin. There's no flaw. No weakness of mine or failure of mine has been exposed or made known or revealed by light. What it means that God is light, the first thing it means in this context is that truth actually exposes us. And not to shame us, not to shame us, but actually to forgive us. Right? If we walk in the light, see in the light, we have, as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. This is... Here's the question. When I'm talking about radical truth, I'm actually really talking about radical honesty. With ourselves before God, but actually also within the community. Are you hiding anything? Here's a hard question. Think about your groups, think about your relationships, the different spheres, social spheres that you live with, within. Uh, are you hiding from Stanford some of the ways you've broken the honor code? Are you hiding from your friends some of the things you think about them and the ways you feel about them? Are you hiding some deep insecurity or bitterness or habit? And this is why I ask you that. How much deep connection and oneness and fellowship, how much rest, how much of a sense of home, how much of a sense of these are my people, how much of a sense of I will always be accepted here, can you have if you have to hide parts of yourself? How much koinonia can you have when continued participation and enjoyment of said community, whatever ones you're thinking about, requires that you continue to conceal parts of who you are. Any Dexter watchers? Please, come on, y'all. Come on. Thank you. Thank you. TV show Dexter, you should watch it. It's incredible, the first. It kind of gets weak at the end. But when I first watched that show, if you watch one episode, you'll resonate with it deeply in a scary way. Here's the premise. Don't get hung up, but you have to think about it for a second. He's a serial killer, serial killer. So he's a serial killer that kills serial killers, right? That's not what the show is about. Um, you're like, that sounds interesting. You can make a show about it. It's not what it's about. The show is about his longing to have a relationship where the worst about him could be known and he'd still be accepted. And so what every season is, is every season explores a different potential relationship where he thinks, I can finally tell someone, he calls his evil self his dark passenger, I can finally tell someone about my dark passenger and have friendship. So the first season, it explores the possibility of maybe a brother could do that. 
It can, and, and next season is father, then it's like sister, or no, it's lover, it's friend, it's sister. And what happens is every season is an exploration of the fact that they don't think there's any relationship that could actually handle the worst about us. That where we could still be received, enjoyed, and treasured. The cross has the power to create that community. A commute, not just an individual relationship, but a community of relationships. And when we fail to manifest that community as God's people, it's not because the cross is not powerful enough. It's because we're actually afraid to test the limits of God's grace. And I don't mean by doing bad things, but I mean by letting our bad things be known. God intends that his community and the fellowship that we're invited into to be a place where his grace is finally understood to be of such magnitude that we no longer hide our failure or our weakness or our fears and our sins in the dark, but we bring it into the light and we hear the words of pardon and we gather friends who will be with us as we fight our things. But here's the thing about it. If that community really begins to form a community actually where the worst about us is safely known, here's what we all have to recognize. We hate that community. It is going to be messy. There's going to be a lot of excellent and well kind of lodged criticism at that kind of community. If everything that the worst about us is known in it. Right? If we create a community in which we said, here is the heart of this community is that in this community, there is grace for every kind of problem person and every kind of problem any person has. What kind of community should we expect to occur if we say all sin, all failure, all shortcoming, all weakness, all flaws, there is no need for hiding any of that here. This is the thing about it. Is we, we'll talk in various contexts, both religious and not, about authentic community. We don't want authentic community, y'all. We don't like people the way they really are. Not, if, if, you, if we actually were honestly examine the group of people that follow Jesus over the course of the ministry, we wouldn't want to be a part of that group. And it's not because the people that followed him were stuffy religious conservatives. No, no, no. They objected to people's group, uh, to Jesus' group as well. His group was prostitutes, was corrupt government officials, and people with disgusting, disgusting skin diseases. If you saw a gathering of those people in this room tonight, and this is your first night in RUF, and you peeked through that window, you would walk past. That's authentic community. God's grace actually gives us the capacity to create that kind of community. The parable of the prodigal son tells us something scary because the parable of the prodigal son is where you see this son whose life is out of control come back to the father and plead for mercy and he receives him and he throws a party and he says your, fin- your sins are forgiven and you're my son and they throw a party. And then you have a son who is so proud of how well he's done and he can't enter into the party because he hates the fact that authentic community is happening in the party. The parable of the prodigal son is telling us something scary which is Pride is the clean sin, and it's the most deadly one. It's the one that keeps us looking clean. Pride causes us to say, 
that community of God's people, there's a lot of mess in there. And I associate with the good people and the more serious people and the more committed people. And right there in that is our tacit confession that we don't want authentic community based on grace. We want a performance-based community that endorses our public and proud performance. It's always true in Jesus' ministry that the clean sin of pride, right? Pride keeps you clean. Keeps more, out of, more people out of the kingdom of God than the social messy sins of prostitutes. Read the Gospels. Christian community is going to be a mess. If we let truth be in there, if we let grace be in there, it's going to be a mess. And this means that also we have to grieve that the church messes this up a lot. That we mess this up a lot. That we are actually, even Christians are so suspicious of God's grace, we refuse to let His grace challenge this aspect of how we create community. And if your problem is, what I hope for the Christian community at Stanford is that when you dabble in it, when you begin to form friendship in it, you find there are just all kinds of objectionable people. And if your problem is spiritual pride and hypocrisy, there's room for you too. Because he's faithful and just to forgive. So, in terms of radical truth and honesty, it also doesn't just mean that we get to be true or honest about ourselves. It also means that we are true and honest to others about themselves. That in the context of real friendship, uh, we can say hard things to each other. Uh, A friend of mine told me that, uh, I just talked to him the other day, he found out that a man in his church had had a second affair, and my friend called him and said, listen, we need to meet, and I'm going to bring some other guys to meet with you as well. So this is going to be a big conversation. And so they came into this meeting to address this, the fact that for the second time he'd been unfaithful to his wife. And that guy said later after the meeting that it was actually in that meeting when he gathered together with those men to talk to him about what was going on in his life, where he came to believe in Jesus was in that meeting. And the reason why is this. He said, I came to that meeting preparing myself to get cussed out. Preparing myself to get met with rage and to be shamed. And instead I was met with tears and I was embraced and the words of grace were ministered to me. In a community of radical truth, we're going to be honest with ourselves before each other, and we're going to be honest to each other. Right? Do you have people who love you enough to confront you? Or have you carefully constructed enough defenses that prevent that kind of love? Right? And we're not talking about confrontation that's done in anger or revenge. We're talking about the kind of confrontation that's done in sorrow and actually done with commitment to you, that I'm going to say something hard to you, and now I'm with you. Right? Radical truth. The last thing is concrete grace. And I said that word concrete because it means grace is not just an idea in the kingdom of God. It has a real world manifestation. It does things. Grace is not an idea or a concept for Jesus. The grace of the cross was his real expression of it. He forgave us by paying the debt of our sin and removing our record of guilt. And it's earned not by religious performance, but all is required that you actually cry to Him for mercy. So grace in this community 
has got to be concrete. It's got to be real, not just a sentiment. One of the most powerful conversations that you'll have in this life is when you deploy the F word. The F word is forgiveness, right? There's, I'm sorry, uh, no worries, right? Have you ever said, will you forgive me? And heard someone answer back, I forgive you. It's a totally different conversation than my bad, no worries. Because when you use that word, it does something. It opens y'all up and actually reveals the nature of what's going on, which is, you hurt me. There are demands of justice that have been created. And when you say, I forgive you, you say, I release you for the demands of justice. I actually embrace the wound that you did to me, and I choose to no longer mete out justice to you. When you do that, it creates a kind of intimacy that will blow your mind. When you use that word within friendship. But grace is not just forgiveness. That's just one example. In Acts, when it describes the community of God's people, in Acts 2, it says, they all believed together and then began to share their things in common and sold their possessions and belongings and distributed resources when people had need. There was a commonality. What happened was, people began to have the grace of caring about each other's needs all the time. It's grace that fuels a life in which we bear each other's burdens in real ways. It means that you cancel your plans when a friend is in distress. That's a concrete expression of grace. It means that you think actively and intentionally to include and invite people who need to be included and invited. It means that you ask people about themselves and then you listen. And you ask more questions and you listen more. It means that you offer to help genuinely. It means that we observe people and then give honest, historically grounded encouragement, not just platitudes. It means you stick with people when other people abandon them. It means you continue to be a friend when being a friend requires a lot of time and people are in dark places that also bring you down. And it means that your guiding question in the context of the friendship is, not when can I be done? Your guiding question is, what do they need? That's grace. That's a tall order. But it's also, it's not for you to do individually. It's for us to do in mutual grace to one another. When Elizabeth and I had four kids under the age of two, you know, we were, we were just a black hole of grace. The church came around us and we ate only because the church loved us. We were in a place where we needed to be loved. And you know what? At different stages in our life, we're in places where we have a lot to give. And there are going to be other stages where we have a lot to love. David Jones, the pastor at Grace Press, is a great friend of mine. You know what he and I have both done on several occasions? We've texted each other at 11 o'clock at night and just said, Hey man, I need to talk at the goose. And he's woken up and come to the goose to meet me because I was in a low place and I've woken up and come to the goose to meet him because he's been in a low place. There's a mutuality of grace. It's not all your burden, it's our shared burden. And it's a joyful thing when there's an unbegrudging give and take of grace within God's community. Those are concrete expressions of grace that begin to mark the kind of community in which we together grow up into Christian maturity and, Lord willing, advertise to the world actually a new way of being a group of people. A new way of actually non-self-interested living together that puts God's heart on display. There's, we could say a whole lot more. These are just a few things I want to talk about what fellowship means. And I'll close with this. Here's, if you take these features and some aspects of, of Christian community... And then you walk around with your clipboard and judge, right? Then you've missed it. 
Later in the letter in chapter 4, John says this, Let us love one another, for love is from God. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but He loved us by sending His Son to wipe away all that condemns us. We love because He first loved us. He is saying that the origin of our ability to begin to seek and live out these kinds of relationships and experience this kind of community is when you open yourself up to His love. And when you open yourself up to His love, what you don't naturally do is you don't begin to then stand in judgment over all the Christian groups. You'll actually realize what we're called to is stand in the midst of God's people and imagine and invite others' people to come into a community and form a community that begins to look like this. The only way to begin to love and to construct a community like this is if you first have an experience of love from Him. If you begin to taste His grace, this is the kind of love that comes from God. Let's pray.